0: Will you pray with me? Father, we love your word. Through it, you have told us about yourself. You have told us about your glorious kingdom, and you have told us what is true. That before the foundation of the world, you gave your son to rescue us from ourselves, from sin and death, and to make all things new again. And for this, Lord, we can do nothing but praise your holy name. So Father, today I ask you that you guide me in order that I stay true to your gospel and that we may all gain a richer understanding of your love in embracing the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to pull a little bit of an audible here. Um, The passage today is John chapter 18, 33 to 38. But I'm actually going to thank you. Um, I'm actually going to back up a little bit and read beginning, um, at verse 28. So if you want to follow along in your Bibles, you're more than welcome to do that. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show you, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. And we pick up in John 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Why won't Jesus just give us a straight answer? (laughs) It seems every time that he is asked a question, he responds in some sort of cryptic non-response one of his favorite things to do is actually answer a question by asking another question. Or, as we see running through large chunks of the Gospels, he loves to explain things in parables. But this seems only to confuse things even more. So why does he do this? Is he purposely trying to be evasive? Or does he just maybe have a slightly different agenda than us? Let me ask you all a question. This should be fairly simple for good faithful Christians, why did Jesus come into this world? Why did he come to earth? What was the purpose of the incarnation? Many Christians would say that Jesus came to save his wayward sinful people from themselves, from their sin, to wipe away every tear and triumph over suffering, sin, and death, and to make all things new again to restore the earth and the entire universe to its original, unblemished, uncorrupted state as God had first intended in the Garden of Eden. And if you answered in this way, then you would be absolutely correct. However, while these things are according to God's will, they are actually incidental, meaning they all fall under a much bigger divine objective. You see, when we think about Christ becoming flesh and dwelling among us, we, as fallen sinners, without even thinking, locate the whole point of God's salvation plan on ourselves. What we've done is we've just turned God into our own personal genie in a bottle, some sort of of get-out-of-jail-free card. Please don't misunderstand. God loves us. That's why he sent his son. But it's not first about us. It's first about God. One of the best insights we have for understanding the incarnation is to look at Jesus' parables. And not unlike this exchange between Pilate and himself, Jesus' parables often tend to confuse us rather than clarify Jesus' teaching. But what's actually quite helpful on Jesus' part is that he tells us right up front when he, why he is speaking this way. And he's not particularly inspiring or encouraging either. But, it, but his message is, understanding why he came, why the Son became flesh and dwelt among us. And it is grounded in the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 13, right after Jesus tells his first parable about the sower and the seed, he explains what it means. But first, and more importantly, he explains the intended purpose of the parables. In verse 13 of Matthew 13, Jesus specifically says, this is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. He then quotes directly from the prophet Isaiah, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. Jesus is flat out telling us that he has chosen some to see, to hear, and to understand. But he has also chosen others who will not see, nor hear, and thus not understand. And every single parable that he tells is prefaced with, and the kingdom of heaven will be like. All these things are telling us that God's plan is to bring his kingdom back to its full glory and that these parables are demonstrations of how that will actually happen. This is what God's kingdom will look like. And he's not asking for our participation. He's making a declaration concerning himself and his omnipotent, transcendent authority and power. The coming of Christ incarnate is not first about our salvation. It's first about God's glory and his sovereignty as the king who will reign over all things. So here in the dialogue between Pilate and Jesus, Jesus is doing what he typically does. He's explaining to Pilate and to us who he is and what he's doing whether any of us actually like it or not. But what's so ironic and typical of Jesus is that in this interaction between himself and this Roman prefect, he is actually the one controlling the whole dynamic. Even though he's the one being questioned, he's the one that's on trial. Everything here appears to place him at a disadvantage. And yet? So now, after this short introduction, I want to ask two questions. First, what does Jesus mean when he says, my kingdom is not of this world? And second, how do we understand Pilate's question concerning truth? As I just said, all the parables are showing us God's kingdom, and specifically how the kingdom of heaven should be understood. If we look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus warns us, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand it's fairly obvious that Jesus is a king, and he will reign. He's not some democratically elected man of the people. He's not administering a poll to get a better handle on what his people like and don't like. He's not trying to determine the best way to persuade all the wonderful people of the world that he has the best plan for us so that we can make the best of our lives here on this earth. No, he's a king, and what's most important is he is the king, You know, maybe this is why Western Christianity so often gets sidetracked in understanding what the Bible is all about. We simply don't like kings. Kings are sovereign. They are in total control of us. Kings tell us what to do, and they aren't particularly interested in our opinions. Even the allegedly good kings throughout history had their shortcomings. Our own country exists because we ran away from an oppressive monarchy that didn't really care about us and was severely limiting our freedom. And as we see in 2 Samuel 11, even the best king in the Bible, King David, fails miserably. So clearly, while our need for a king may be in God's plan for us, it appears this king can't be a human king. It can't be a king of this world. So the problem we encounter when we try to determine what the kingdom of heaven is, the kingdom that is not of this world, is that we naturally think of it as a kingdom of this world. We do exactly what Jesus tells us not to do. We make it all about ourselves. It's just so hard for us to embrace the truth of Christians that we are not our own. But if we listen to Paul in Romans 14, 7 and 8, he is very clear. For no one, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. And in Luke's Gospel, 9.23, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. These are clear directives that are telling us that we need to stop paying so much attention to ourselves and pay more attention to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 14, verses 25 to 31, we encounter the story about Peter walking on the sea to meet Jesus. The disciples had just been sent out ahead by Jesus while Jesus remained back on the land to pray. Then during the night, while the sea became rough, they see Jesus walking towards them, but they don't know it's him, so they're afraid because they think he's a ghost. But then Jesus tells them, it's just me, don't be afraid. At which point, Peter asks Jesus to command him to get out of the boat and walk on the water towards Christ. Now, we all know what happens next. Peter's doing just fine. He's walking across the waves, but then he looks around at all the fury of the rolling sea, and he's afraid again, and so he begins to sink. And then he cries out to Jesus, Lord, save me. Jesus pulls him out of the water, and they both get back in the boat. Jesus, in this little demonstration of divine power, lovingly says to Peter, "Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Why do I cite this story? Simply because it's a perfect example of how God's kingdom works. It is not only theologically in conflict with our temporal existence, it is quite literally metaphysically in conflict with our temporal existence. God's kingdom can defy earthly bounds as we understand them it's near impossible for us to comprehend because it goes against everything that we know is true in our own physical world. If you or I went on a boat later this afternoon and tried to walk on water, well, we'd just sink under. Sure, some of us might be able to swim, but the one thing we're not doing is we're not walking on water. Another reason I note this brief story between Peter and Jesus is that we as believers too often fail to recognize the proper relationship between God and ourselves. We look at Jesus and say to ourselves, we believe in you. But as soon as we profess our belief, we forget the reason our belief is even possible. It's because of Jesus himself. So like Peter, when we take our eyes off of Christ, we get caught up in what we're doing, how we're performing for God, and we forget who enabled us to believe in the first place. We take our focus off of Christ and we direct it back onto ourselves, and we do this all the time. Please don't look at this story like this is some sort of biblical lesson that was provided for us to help us do better in our faith. No, it's a picture of how we all fall desperately short of God's heavenly kingdom, and that without Jesus continually reaching out to save us from ourselves, we would all sink like a stone. What's universal about all of us, believer or unbeliever, is that we simply don't place all our focus on the person of Christ. Even when we are arguably being obedient to God, there is still a part from ourselves that is attributing whatever we think we have done that is righteous to our own efforts. It's unavoidable because we are still sinners and not yet fully glorified. This is what Jesus is talking about when he says, My kingdom is not of this world. His kingdom is completely upside down from this world. It's antithetical to anything we know as the right way of doing things in this world. His kingdom says that the meek will inherit the earth. His kingdom tells us that we are to love our enemies. His kingdom defines this love as giving sacrificially of ourselves, not only to the people that we love, but to the people that we hate, and to the people that hate us. His kingdom tells us that in order to live, we must die. His kingdom tells us that if we choose following the law as the means for attaining eternal life, that this will be entirely ineffective and accomplish absolutely nothing towards our salvation. That's not entirely true. It will accomplish something. It will separate us quite nicely from our Savior. Herman Ritter Boss is a theological scholar, and he has a fitting quote concerning how we need to readjust our understanding of the kingdom of heaven And I quote, it is not man who prepares it for God. His point is that the kingdom of God, the kingdom that God announces in his revealed world is coming to fruition through absolutely no effort from us. It is entirely the work of God. Yes, we are involved. He created us in his image. Of course, we're important to him. But our involvement is only because of him. He's the one orchestrating this whole process. He's the one doing the saving because he's the one who did the creating in the first place. And so when Jesus states that his kingdom is not of this world, the primary point that he's driving home to Pilate is that the mechanics of the divine kingdom are radically different in both their objective and their fulfillment from those represented by any earthly kingdom. But Jesus' pronouncement concerning the kingdom contains an even deeper meaning. If we look at one specific parable in Luke chapter 18, 28 to 30, we get a clear picture of what the kingdom of God looks like. Jesus not only references the kingdom of God in this parable, he places its existence directly in the present. This passage is located in the parable of the rich young ruler, the guy who walks away sad after Jesus confronts him with what is necessary in order to earn eternal life. In other words, how do I enter the kingdom of heaven? But the rich young man's problem is that he actually thinks that he's capable of keeping God's law. So Jesus says, fine, have it your way. Now go and sell everything that you own and give the money to the poor. And so the guy walks away sad. Jesus is telling him, if you want to have eternal life by doing the law, then you have to keep it perfectly to which his disciples, after hearing this, say to Jesus, well, then who's able to enter the kingdom? We all know Christ's response. What is impossible for man is possible with God. Here again, we see Jesus making distinction between how God's kingdom works as opposed to how the fallen earthly kingdom works. But there is more in this passage that is very, very easy to read right past. In verse 28, Peter says to Jesus, we have left everything to follow you, to which Jesus responds, truly I say to you, who has done this for the sake of the kingdom of God will receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus has just directly connected belief in him, following him, as being for the sake of the kingdom of God but it's also evident that while eternal life will be fully consummated in the age to come, eternal life is equally present in the right here and the right now. I'm going to rely on Herbin Ritterboss again for a really good quote. He emphatically states, The kingdom of heaven has come because Christ has come. The kingdom of heaven, while not having been fully consummated in all its divine glory and splendor, is nevertheless fully realized in Jesus Christ right now. So when Jesus makes his pronouncement that his kingdom is not of this world, he's not only explaining the radical difference between the condition of sinful man and the divine perfection of the kingdom, he's actually telling Pilate, I am the kingdom, which Pilate clearly doesn't understand because he's only concerned about this earthly kingdom and how all this turmoil is affecting him and how it's literally given him a headache. But then Jesus proceeds to tell Pilate exactly what his purpose is. He is to bear witness to the truth. Well, Pilate didn't understand, if Pilate didn't understand this whole kingdom thing, he's even less enamored with Jesus' purpose statement because he flippantly asks, well, then, what is truth? So, what is truth? I was recently watching a few television talking heads discussing. Well, actually, they weren't discussing. They were each presenting their own opinion and then waiting for the other person to shut up so they could continue pontificating and enlightening the viewers with their self-ordained pseudo-intellectual prowess. Pardon my cynicism, but this seems to be the dominant model for how TV news gets disseminated these days. And the primary goal is not to resolve any particular issue or even to come to some sort of consensus. In fact, I think that's exactly the point, to not do that It's the no-holds-barred verbal aggression that is passed off as legitimate argument that sells. If a solution or even a meeting of the minds was to occur, well, that's just bad TV. Bad ratings equals no advertising equals no money. But even if we accept the strategy behind this ratings-driven model, it still implies a false premise from the get-go. The assumption that the proper way to evaluate any particular issue is that we must consider that every opinion is equally valid. Fox News calls it fair and balanced, but all the major news networks use their own version of this approach. They do this in order to appear that they are somehow taking a neutral position. But the problem with this methodology of verbal debate is that it assumes that there is some sort of objective neutrality that governs fairness, which is simply impossible. And what's worse, the whole concept of fair and balance is presumed to be the only objective means for honestly evaluating anything. What I often find myself doing is screaming at the TV, I don't want fair and balance. I just want you to tell me what the facts are so I can form my own opinion. I want the truth. Sound like Colonel Jessup from A Few Good Men, right? You can't handle the truth. Well. It's probably more deep than you know in this sermon. I'm not sure that we can. At the very beginning of this sermon, I asked a question, why did Jesus come into this world? And then I explained that it was because God's will, through the incarnation, to establish the kingdom of heaven, his kingdom, throughout all creation. But as is so often the case in God's economy, things are not always cut and dry. And in verse 37 of chapter 18, we run into one of these situations, because Jesus himself tells us why he came into this world, to bear witness to the truth. So is this in conflict to establishing the kingdom of heaven throughout all creation? I think we all know the answer to that one. Of course not. In fact, this is exactly how God intends to reestablish his kingdom. It is in and through the work of the eternal Son, in the being of Jesus Christ, that is going to fix everything that we have screwed up. But this still begs the question, what is truth? As we listen to Pilate responding to Jesus at the end of our passage, it doesn't sound like he really wants to know the truth. In fact, his attitude is more of arrogance and blind indifference. But let me caution, before we jump all over Pilate for his casual attitude toward the God of the universe— I'm going to suggest that Pilate's not a whole lot different than we are. We claim to want to know what is true. But in the same breath, we are quick to accept that what one person believes is true should not invade or override what any other person believes is true, meaning everyone can have their own version of the truth, as long as it works for them and it doesn't step on anyone else's toes. But if that's true, how can there even be truth? If truth is subjective, then logically there can be no truth. Therefore, there must be things that are true, things that are in direct opposition to things that are not true. This is the philosophical question that has plagued mankind throughout the centuries. Can there be an absolute truth? I will argue that not only can there be, there must be. Absolute truth is absolutely imperative for the universe to function. If there was an absolute truth, I couldn't even say that. It is also necessary in order to engage in any type of intellectual discourse. If there is not one thing that can be relied on as true, then arguments are no longer arguments. They're just discussions with people talking past each other with no hope of any sort of resolution. Everything essentially becomes meaningless. Sounds like the news thing all over again. So there has to be some sort of universal truth that is reliable, a truth that is consistent, a truth that establishes the foundation for all other truths. It must be a truth that cannot change. Sadly, much of the world wants us to believe there is no absolute truth. But what's more unfortunate is that too often this thinking has infiltrated the Church. But if we can't believe in absolute truth, then there really is no reason to believe that Jesus did anything the Bible says he did, particularly his death and resurrection. And if we don't believe in that, you just all go to the beach and kick back and have a cold one. But, but Jesus, as Jesus always does, in John 14, 6, has graciously provided us with the answer. And it's a pretty clear pronouncement. It's a declaration that is not subject to linguistic manipulation, although many have tried and many still do. It is Jesus telling the world, this is exactly how it works. This is how the kingdom of heaven will be reestablished for all creation. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus explicitly tells us that he is the truth. He's not saying that he's a way to the truth. He's saying that he is the way and is himself the truth. Everything that is defined as true ultimately is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And as John stated at the very beginning of his gospel, the word that became flesh, Jesus, he is the one that everything was made by and through and for. So when Pilate asks his cynical question to Jesus, I contend it's actually Jesus asking and answering the question himself. Pilate's just a mouthpiece who's a representative of all fallen humanity. Jesus is asking all of us, what do you believe? Because to believe in truth is to believe in me. In bringing this all together, I'd like to note that Pilate actually gets something right, albeit mockingly, when a little bit later in John 19, verses 14 and 16, he says to the Jewish authorities again, Behold your king, shall I crucify him? To which the Jews cry out, We have no king but Caesar. This is a classic example of how too many Christians contend with their faith. Maybe not as outwardly rebellious as the Jews in this situation, but nevertheless, we continually place the world and all its shiny objects above our obedience to God. We will say we love Jesus, but then refuse to obey his commands. We want all the benefits that come with belief, but as soon as he makes demands that make us uncomfortable, or that we think don't seem loving, or that will not directly enhance our present lifestyle, then we resort to making excuses. And we try to manipulate what he says to fit our own personal agendas. And just like the Jewish authorities, we pledge our allegiance to something of far lesser authority or value. Now, we may not be quite as extreme as the Jewish hierarchy, who proclaim their devotion to an earthly emperor. But we, on a daily basis, place our personal desires above those that God has prescribed for us. You see, there is a problem that plagues us all. And it's the problem that's facing, the, facing Israel in the Old Testament and Israel in the New Testament. And it's also the immediate problem facing the Roman emperor in this little interchange. The problem is not in our desire to search for a king or desire to search for the truth. No, we're forever doing that. Just read the whole Old Testament. No, the sad reality is that we're our own worst enemy. We say we are searching for truth, something that will help us make sense of this messed up world. But when the answer is staring us right in the face, we don't want to hear it. Or we think that this can't be what God is saying. The problem with what we, the problem is that when we encounter the right and true king, we don't like what he says. So we keep searching for something new and different, something that will satisfy our deepest earthly desires. But it's our desires for what we want that got us in this mess in the first place. So in closing, I'm going to read a short commentary of one man's take on the world's desperate search for the truth. Some of you may have heard of him. His name is Malcolm Mugridge. He was an English journalist who lived during the bulk of the 20th century. And he eventually came to Christ, but only after exhausting pretty much every conceivable argument against Christianity. Keep in mind when I'm reading this, this is actually, he he wrote this probably sometime in the late, Uh, I want to say 80s, which is pretty much right right around when he died. It's entitled, Do You Know Him? We look back upon history and what do we see? Empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulated and wealth dispersed. Shakespeare has written of the rise and fall of great ones that ebb and flow with the moon. I look back upon my own fellow countrymen, Once upon a time dominating the quarter of the world, most of them convinced in the words of what is still a popular song, that the God who made them mighty shall make them mightier yet. I've heard a cracked crazed Austrian announce to the world the establishment of a Reich that would last a 1,000 years. I've seen an Italian clown say he was going to stop and restart the calendar with his own ascension to power. I've heard a murderous Georgian brigand in the Kremlin acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the world as being wiser than Solomon, more humane than Marcus Aurelius, and more enlightened than Ashaka. I've seen America wealthier in terms of military power, more powerful than the rest of the world put together, so that had the American people so desired, they could have outdone a Caesar or an Alexander in the range and scale of their conquests, all in one lifetime all in one lifetime, gone. England, now part of a tiny island off the coast of Europe, threatened with the dismemberment of, and even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini, dead, remembered only in infamy. Stalin, now a forbidden name in the, in the regime he helped, found, and dominate for some three decades. America, haunted by fears of running out of these precious their precious fluids that keep their motorways roaring, and with the troubled memories of a failed campaign in Vietnam and the victories of the Don Quixotes of the media as they charge the windmills of Watergate. All in one lifetime, all in one lifetime, gone. Behind the debris of these solemn supermen and self-styled imperial diplomatists, there stands a gigantic figure of one. Because of whom, by whom, and in whom, All mankind may still have peace. The person of Jesus Christ. I present him as the way and the truth of the life. Do you know him? The important takeaway here is the question that hangs in its closing. Do you know him? Do you know the truth? Because these are the same question. In Christ and Christ alone rests the fate of all humanity and all creation. He is the object and perfecter of our faith. He is the one true God who is the only answer to all the lies, pain, suffering, and death that dominates our current earthly existence. He is the one person who literally defines truth. He is our Savior, and He is our King. Do you know Him? you pray with me? Father in heaven, it's so easy for us to get caught up in our daily lives And while we know that there are things that we have to contend with in our earthly existence, that we can't just put everything aside, we also are aware that we fall woefully short of being obedient to you, of trusting in your Son. Father, help us to be closer to you. Help us to understand that you are the truth. There is no other truth other than you. We ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.